know, you're told you can't or you're told that there's a difficulty or a challenge. And it's about saying, well, actually, do you know what? I want it enough. And I do believe when we talk a lot about resilience, that it's very, very closely attuned, obviously, to purpose. And I think when we have a purpose and and something that we're heading towards, it's easier to be resilient because if you take a knockback, you think, how else can I get there? How else can I get there? In this podcast, I'm going to be exploring what it takes to live a life full of adventure and freedom. I'll be interviewing adventurers, explorers and business owners who have set their life up to have an abundance of choice. And I'm also going to give you the high performance tips and tricks I teach my adventurepreneur clients to have the kind of life they want and be the type of person they wish they were. So if you're not already, subscribe to the show and settle in for another episode of The Freedom Project. Welcome back to the Freedom Project podcast, where we explore the thrilling intersection of adventure and entrepreneurship. Today, we're super excited to bring you a special interview with Mandy Hickson, a true force of nature and an inspiration to all adventurepreneurs. Mandy's story is nothing short of extraordinary. As the only female pilot in her frontline tornado squadron, she flew multi-million pound jets for the UK Royal Air Force, navigating some of the most challenging environments you can imagine, including Iraq's no-fly zone. Her journey to these heights is a tale of true grit and determination, starting with a flying scholarship at 17 and winning an acrobatics competition as a student, Mandy faced a significant hurdle when she initially failed her mandatory computer-based tests, but undeterred, she fought her way through, showcasing her exceptional flying skills and earning her a place in the skies. But Mandy's expertise isn't just about flying fast jets. She's also a skilled human factors facilitator, offering invaluable insights into the decision-making under pressure, risk-taking, and the crucial role of humans in complex systems. These lessons are not just relevant in the cockpit, they're incredibly applicable to the business world and personal challenges alike. Also, Mandy has put her experience to great use off the field. She co-founded Aspiring Women for Work, helping women regain confidence and re-enter the workforce after taking a break. Her work here is a reflection of her commitment to empowerment and leadership. And in this episode, Mandy shares her incredible experiences and the lessons she's learned from the life in the fast lane. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a leader, or just someone seeking a dose of inspiration, Mandy's story is bound to resonate with you. So let's dive in and hear from the wonderful Mandy Hicks and herself right here on the Freedom Project podcast. Get ready for a journey filled with insights, inspiration, in the spirit of adventure. When did you decide that becoming, and this this is must be a question you've been asked a thousand times, when did you decide that you're going to become a pilot? Um, really young, actually. Um, I think I was so blessed in many ways to find something that I love doing. And so I was 13 when I first got into flying through the air cadets. And when I flew, I just remember having a chat with the pilot and just saying, you know, gosh do you get paid for this and he was like yeah absolutely this is my job and I just it was that in that moment really where I think I realized that if you can find a a career that pays you as well then and it's something you love then you're going to be successful in what you do and and for the for myself at the age of 13 to have that sort of insight I think I was really really lucky yeah that is a huge stroke of luck actually um what I'm guessing there was some construction from parents or some kind of guidance from them yeah a little bit so my grandpa was a pilot in the second world war and I grew up for a long time hearing all of his stories and then when 
the air cadets open their doors to girls. My mum happened to be reading it in the local paper. And I'd always been in those days, we would call ourselves a tomboy, you know, but I'd always been really active, very, very sporty. If there was a tree to climb, it would be me. I'd be the one that was covered in mud. And, you know, I loved, and I always loved that sort of sense of risk. And so I think when my mum saw about the air cadets, she thought, you know, this would actually combine a lot of Mandy's hobbies. I mean, I love canoeing, you know, outdoor pursuits. And they offered a lot of those sorts of things, all of that extra curricular stuff that if you don't go to a private school, you might not get on the, the classic curriculum at school. And so, yeah, when I did that and, and then the flying as the icing on the cake, then I actually sort of it really spurred me on to, to want to go into that sort of world. Was there anyone in your life who gave that example of someone who lives adventure and take those takes those risks? What, what, leading him from the front? Yeah, like, like any I, parental role. Obviously, your grandfather seems like one of those people. Yeah, no, I, I mean, my mum, to be honest, was... So my mum and dad divorced when I was about two. And um, I mean, I had a great relationship with my dad as well. So, um, But what I saw from my mum, we had a caravan and it was an absolute heap of rubbish. It was the tiniest... I mean, there was no toilet or anything like that, you know. Um, it was one of those real tiny boxes. But mum would take us everywhere on holiday. And we were always on an old car that had been literally given to us by someone that, you know, that was changing their car. And one of them was called a Hillman Minx and it would always break down. And so every caravanning trip we'd ever go on would be spent in a garage on the side of a motorway with us going, mom, and her going, it's all right, girls, don't worry. So I think that whole can-do attitude, you know, for her, you know, this was pre-mobile phones. This was pre-internet. This is pre-any sort of connectivity her just to be saying, yeah, I'm going to take this caravan and these two little girls at the age of, what, three and five, and we're going to go. I think that was quite brave of her, really. And, you know, we went to France, we toured round, we did all sorts. She was a teacher, so she used to get the summer holidays off. So we would take these really long holidays. And, yeah, so I think that pioneering sort of adventurous spirit probably does come probably a lot from my mum. Yeah, because it's a. am guessing some people fall in love with flying and then they go down the commercial route. And that's what they enjoy. Yeah. And some people want to fly a tornado. Those are two yeah. different parts. They are quite different things, yeah. Um, no, it was definitely going to be military for myself. I, I loved aviation, but it was not going to be in the commercial capacity. That, that really didn't appeal to me that much. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it was sort of like military or bust, I think, yeah. in many ways. What was it about the military that um, resonated with you? Um, I think when you look at the military, you know, the whole ethos is that you're signing up to serve predominantly and then the role that you take is secondary to that. And I think it's easy when you look back to say, yeah, but did you? But the reality is, is that when I first tried to join the Air Force and I failed all of the, the tests to be a pilot, they initially offered me a commission to become an air traffic controller. And I, I took that because I saw it as a foot in the door. Because actually by then I'd joined the University Air Squadron and I'd continued to fly. And they really, I wouldn't say sold the military, but they showed me what I what I loved, which was the camaraderie. I loved the leadership aspects of it. Um, but that sense of team to myself was actually the thing that really drew me in. Um, and obviously becoming a pilot was going to be what I really wanted to do. But the fact that I actually even took that initial job as an air traffic controller probably demonstrates that it was being part of the military that was was just as important as being a pilot as well yeah because that's a, a somewhat significant setback 
in terms of you've got a plan how old were you when you um when you had that kind of I don't know I'm gonna yeah. say setback for want of a better word yeah no it was a setback I was 21 so I failed them when well so when I was at university they changed the rules allowing women to join because until that point they've never allowed you to join and um I applied and I failed the first year and then I went back a second year now in my final year and I failed again and that's when you start thinking well I can't do it more than twice so the door is well and truly shut. But I often say this is where sometimes it's really important other people believe in us. And I was really lucky, actually. A boss of the club, the University Air Squadron, he'd obviously spotted something within me. Um, I think not just for my flying ability, but also my leadership as well. So I was the president of the mess committee, like the the, the student president of the uh, University Air Squadron as well. And I think all of those things sort of came together and he sort of really encouraged me and also pushed the Air Force to really look at their testing. And he said, how can this girl be flying really, really well in the air and not passing your tests? So the Air Force went on and actually took me on as a test case and eventually the test did change. Nice. What did you learn from that? I think I learned that, A, it's really important to have people that around you that believe in you and to, to pass that on as well. And that's something that I really... I. I it's a really, really core value to myself. Uh, that whole passing it on, there's plenty of slices of pie. And it's something that I just do all the time now to other people, really encouraging them. For example, in the speaking world now, you know, there's people that have come to me and I've said, actually, I'm going to give you all my information. I'm going to give you my contacts. I'm going to, and they say, this is really kind of you because you don't, A, you don't have to, and B, surely it's competition because, you know, we're pilots. And I was like, look, I don't mind because I, I truly believe what comes around goes around. Um, so I think it's that that sense of believing in other people and pushing them as well. And I think also to challenge, to challenge systems and challenge, you know, is really important because if you don't have a challenge, we don't ever get change. Yeah, because some people would have capitulated in that moment when they didn't get what they initially wanted. The plan goes against their desires. Yeah. And you seem to lean into that a bit. You seem to go, OK, well, there's a way. There's something that I can I can do with this. Yeah, but I I think, yeah, I think to, to learn that lesson really young is really important as well. So when I was 17, I applied for a flying scholarship and I was told I, I had an obesity problem. So at that point, I passed the aptitude test to get a flying scholarship. But I mean, I was what, 12 and a half stone. I was six foot tall and I was really sporty. And they said, you should be nine and a half stone. And I was like, okay. All the days of BMI. I know, it's crazy. The height charts went up to five foot eight for women and they weren't adding any extra weight on for That's a six great. foot tall woman. And so they said, oh, you need to be nine. I have to lose three stone in weight. Now, when you're playing county sport and then you're told to lose three stone in weight and I had, a, what, three months to do it? Again, I just, I was doing my A-levels. I was head down. So I think that just shows me though, in many ways, really that determination. You know, you're told, you can't or you're told that there's a difficulty or a challenge and it's about saying well actually do you know what I want it enough and I do believe when we talk a lot about resilience that it's very very closely attuned obviously to purpose and I think when we have a purpose and, a, and something that we're heading towards it's easier to be resilient because if you take a knockback you think how else can I get there how else can I get there hmm. really nice Rina. so how did that lead you to actually getting invited to fly for the RAF well, when I was um, when I accepted the, the the officer training, basically to become an air traffic controller, I was then in, and I was going through officer training, and I continued to write letters, basically to any high ranking officers that I thought would, you know, listen to my case. But also, the old boss of the was also still on the case, and eventually we just got this letter back, and I think. 
the Air Force looked at their system and they realized that the majority of women that were taking these tests were failing them. And about 70% mm. of men were passing. And so they realized that there might well be some unconscious bias within their testing system that they'd been unaware of because they'd simply never been tested on women. And mm. so, yeah, I was really very lucky to be taken on as a test case. But again, I think probably if it hadn't been for my determination and that perseverance, then I wouldn't have been lucky. And I think so often we say, oh, you're so lucky in life. It's amazing how people who are determined and pretty resilient end up being quite lucky. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, so I spoke to a pilot called Mace Curran and she was, what's oh, the yeah, US Mace. version? Oh, you know Mace. Okay, so yeah. I was speaking to her and about the kind of the image that she felt she had to portray as one of the first females to fly. I can't remember the US version Thunder of the Red Arrows. Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds, there we go. Yeah, so she's, um, was she first or one of the first females to fly for Thunderbirds? She was the, she was the first um, in the, Me, like yeah. what we call the synchro pair. Okay. So, yes. yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So she felt that pressure of like, okay, I'm being treated differently because of my gender. Did you have any of that? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, it was a different era when I joined to even to how it was for, for Mace, you know, and actually Mace and I was, was one of those people that I literally had an hour and a half Zoom call with her about how you get into the speaking world. So, um, yeah, it's, it was a different world. I joined in 1994. Now, when you think about that, that's nearly 30 years ago. Culturally and society, it was a different place. Um, the way that we thought about women and we perhaps treated women was a different world as well. And so, yeah, I mean, I was probably, I wouldn't say treated differently. There was always going to be the fact you were singled out. So perhaps going through officer training, you know, my team pulled out the fact that all the instructors would make a comment to me every single day about my gender, be it, oh, which which jet is Mandy Part? It's the one that's not straight, you know. But they were all flippant comments, nothing malicious. I think I was really very lucky. I only had one incident of bullying in my entire career. Um, I do think I did become, too, I tried to fit in too much at one point. I think I became a bit more laddie. Um, so, you know, sort of changing how we morph our behaviour when we realise that we're just fitting in. And I think everyone does that to some degree. And I don't think that's always a gender thing. And I've seen, you know, young pilots, they'll join a squadron. You know, for example, let's give you an example of a Harrier squadron. And there would be this inherent behaviours that were being exhibited by that squadron as a whole. And you watch a young man morphing from you know, a really nice guy to suddenly being really laddy and, you know, arrogant or whatever it was. And you think, why are you doing that? And it's just because that's human nature. We have that tendency to want to fit into the group, especially if it's a really strong core group. And so we morph. And that's what I think has changed massively from when I joined to how it is now. I think we're much more accepting. You know, if you can imagine people weren't allowed to be gay in the Air Force when I joined. Um, so one of my best friends was gay and he wasn't allowed to be, he would have been thrown out had they mm -hmm. found out that he was gay. So, you know, that's, a, you know, a, a different generation. Um, and thank goodness things have changed. Yeah. Thank goodness. That is, it's crazy to, to even think about that, but that morphing is really interesting. And one of the things that I think is interesting to pull out from this already is you seem to have this determined, um, yeah, this determined mindset of like, this is what I want and I'll find a way to to get that and then you almost had that well i'm gonna fit in and i'm gonna be the gray well the, the gray man like, i'm not gonna stand out i'm gonna be the like not not yeah. like because we I all I, I did that in training and like you kind of it's a game yeah. to play 
Um, but there's it that, is. I mean, the writing I, I letters think... to the hierarchy consistently to go, actually, you should reconsider me. That takes a level of confidence. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, though, when you say grey man, because everyone had said to me, you know, it's really important going through office training that you're the grey man. And then I'm six foot tall. I've got a really bad laugh. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm quite, I'm, oh, I'm not quite. I'm as extrovert as it comes on the extrovert scale. And, you know, when you do the Myers Briggs, I'm like right out here and everyone's going, really? You that extrovert? I'm going, mm, yeah, I probably am. Which is why it works doing the job I do now, because I I can go into any room and straight away I can just chat to people. And I actually energize from it, you know, whereas I think a lot of people feel that very, very draining. So, yeah, officer training, being the sort of person I was, you know, when women were still meant to be women in those days. And, you know, I was told I wasn't allowed to drink pints of beer and I was told I was too Amazonian and I had to be more feminine. Um, and I said, Goodbye. you're training me to you know, ultimately go and fly in a jet to go and kill people. And yet you want me to be more feminine at this point going through officer training. I mean, it really annoyed me that sort of comment of yeah. you, you, you can't have people joining the military who are going to be dainty wallflowers. I don't, it's yeah. just not going to work. Yeah. Did you ever get used as like a poster girl of like, okay, well, look what, look what females can do. Look what the RAF is and kind of used like the, the example that's come to mind is, um, there's a book called where men win glory about Pat Tillman. Um, yeah. Uh, so you know it and like that yeah. element of like, look what this is happening. Like, and look at us, aren't we great? I was really lucky, to be honest, um, Tom. So Joe Salter was the very first female fast jet pilot. And mm -hmm. so she got all of it. She that. got all of it. Okay. She got all of it. Yeah. You know, and, and good luck to her. I didn't particularly want that. But we were also, this is how sort of long the process. So Joe was just finishing officer training when they changed the rules. So she instantly flipped okay. across from engineer to pilot. Mm -hmm. So... So basically, almost on the day of them changing the rules, Joe could then almost start flying training. She was in the right mode and the right mm -hmm. place. For the, for ourselves, it was going to be, you know, I was in my second year at uni when they changed the rules. And then by the time we've been recruited, finished uni, been recruited, gone through officer training, we're actually almost three years behind her by then. And so there was this big gap, which was actually really quite nice because it meant that there was no... There was no sort of like special attention given to us whatsoever. So much so that when um, a girl called Helen came to the squadron and she was um, a navigator and we flew our first, the first ever all female crew in a tornado. And the only coverage of it was was me writing an, an article. And I used to have to write the article for the, the Marham Matters magazine. You know, it's like a quarterly magazine for the station. And I wrote two birds do it together in a tornado as the headline because I thought this would be very funny and it might get the attention of the readers she was furious with it but and all I simply said was two women have finally flown together in a tornado and that was what you know obviously I left it at that but what was hilarious was um I was reading a newspaper article about four or five years later and it's like history has been made two women have flown together in a tornado and I thought mm, that's interesting that's how little the publicity was of interest to anyone at that stage really interesting did that change at all when you started to be actively deployed uh no no head was down and it's it's been fascinating actually now actually because i've, I've been you know i'm on social media now I'm, i do public speaking and somebody you know you often read these comments and be like when you serve in the military you get your head down you don't talk about <laughs> it and i said and I, and I never really respond to the negativity on social media. I can't be bothered. But on this occasion, I thought, actually, do you know what? I am going to comment on this one because I think it's really important. 
I served for 16 and three quarter years, so nearly 17 years with my head down and I did the job. But once I left the Air Force, I think actually I have a responsibility now to the future generations, particularly of women wanting to come through, to be visible and to talk openly about the career that I've had. Because I think that by raising that that visibility to people, then ultimately you can be that role model for them. And mm. it's certainly working because I've been contacted by so many young women, young girls who are keen to go into this world and they just want the advice. And it's been great because I think my book actually ended up as a catalyst for that because it can be read by anyone from, I would say, secondary school upwards. And so it's, it's you know, it gained a lot of media attention and a lot of contacts that have come through social media from pilots in America going through the flying training system that have said, oh, I read the bit about you doing these battle turns and it's the thing I was failing and she's now flying the F-35, you know, and this is brilliant. So stuff like that is just fantastic. I, find, I literally, it really excites me that I can have, you know, a small part to play in, in the future of, of so many young people these days. It's so interesting how people have that um, negative response to someone standing up and doing well. I think there's obviously a little bit of um, jealousy or envy in there, but there's also like you can completely tell the the intention of the person writing and to some degree publicizing themselves about whether they are doing it to, yes, there's always going to be an element of personal gain when you say this is what I'm doing and you're promoting a speaking thing, but when you're doing it to serve other people and with a greater purpose in mind, whereas you can absolutely tell the people who say look how brilliant i am look yeah, what I've done. yeah and it's i think it's a it is a really fine line don't you think and it's interesting because i do all my social media side of it and that's one thing but for example instagram i'm not bothered about being on instagram i'm really not but that's where you can have an influence on younger people mm-hmm. because they're not on other social media platforms they're not on twitter or facebook particularly so if you're wanting to actually be visible, then I think you need to have a presence on those sort of social media platforms. And so it's that fine line of actually, I gain no speaking work whatsoever from being on Instagram. However, that's where you can have an impact. Beautiful, beautiful. One of the things I really want to talk to you about is the, the, the key lessons and principles that you might be able to apply from your career into the world of business. I know there's something you talk about consistently, but before we get to those kind of exact principles, are there stories or memories that run through your mind? Like, Oh, this is another one of those. This is something that I, I saw in the military and now I apply, whether it's consulting businesses or speaking or in your own personal development. Yeah. I think, I think the military debrief really well. Um, You know, the fact that, I mean, you'll have experienced this yourself as well. You know, something happens and you instantly say, right, let's pull that apart. Let's really get to the to the cause, you know, how we can we be better? And every single flight I've ever flown in the military, we debrief it. And yet I say to businesses, do you debrief? And it's often seen as a post-mortem or a negative thing. And I say, you can't, that's not how it can be. You know, even if you're just having quick debriefs at the end of a a meeting and just ask yourself, like, what went well and what went badly? You know, what can we do more of? You know, how can we improve? That constant agility to improve comes from analysing our behaviours. And so that debrief technique is a really good one. Um, What's your exact protocol for that? Or do you have a flow for that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually a classic one from Central Flying School, um, which was taught to everybody. And it's this funnel and it says basically what happened, what are the facts, why did it happen, what's the cause, but how is at the bottom, which is the cure. 
you know, and it's about basically trying to pick out two or three key elements and really doing a deep delve into those areas. And I think if you go for many more than three, it's too overwhelming. And so once you've established the facts, and I say facts are your friends, you know, they can't be debated. So we're going to pick out those facts and then actually ask really open, facilitated questions, trying to avoid the blame aspect of the who, who did that? Because as soon as you say who, it's almost like there's this, there's this fear response. And so actually by asking the what, where, when, how, you know, actually you're getting down. And then once you've established what it is you're trying to improve, you say, okay, was that really good behavior? Because if it was good, well, how can we re- replicate that then? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that's so often over missed is that people often only debrief when things go wrong. But I'd yeah. say also debrief when things go right. Yeah, because there's a three-step kind of um, process from special forces world of like what went well, what didn't go well, and what would we, what would we do differently yeah. if we did it again. So it's like first thing is what went well, and it's like some people have this blinder on where it's like I'm so distracted by the negativity that I forget the 25 things that actually went really well, and one thing could be awful, but it's still that's yeah. the, the the primary focus as opposed to 25 things did well. And other people were completely the other way as well, and they they have that that switched up. Um, so yeah, I'm guessing you focus on both at the same time yeah you do but human human nature dictates that if there's one negative comment so i think when i look at my book uh, this is not me sort of doing a self but there's been like 2500 five-star reviews and then there's one one star review which said something like this i can quote you this is this is female nazi propaganda yeah, I'm like, sorry for writing hey, that. I, I won't write that again. No, you, sorry. You, yeah. Really? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I couldn't hear myself going, how dare they? Hey, there's nothing Nazi-ish in this. And <laughs> it's not propaganda. It's my life story. And so I could feel myself. But I can. the fact is, I can quote you that one, not the 2,000 yeah. five-star lovely comments. Because human nature says, focus on the negative, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at school results, and we do this as well but with our children, you know, or, you know, where you get a report and you get nine a stars and you get one e what is the comment going to be what was the e in yeah it's 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 just terrible that we do that but we all do it we all do it Mm. even as a parent i do that as well you know i have to catch myself if you're an adventurepreneur and you want more freedom to do more cool shit then i want to help you do that every month i take on a maximum of three new clients into my high performance adventurepreneur program This is a completely bespoke, personal and deep dive program giving you complete freedom, teaching you high performance mastery. It's application and invite only, and I accept only those who are the best fit for the program. To apply for your space, head to my Instagram, Tom Foxley, F-O-X-L-E-Y, and send me a message with the word interested. Of course, you have to be able to do it, but... I think we're in a, a luxurious position now where we have to remind ourselves to go, okay, remind yourself of what you've done well. So one of the concepts yeah. that has come from well, the US military and then transferred over to the UK, um, particularly in the Air Force, and that has affected the world of business is the OODA loop. Um, yeah. So you don't need me to explain that to you. Um, but for everyone who's listening, observe, orient, decide and act, it's something that people would have heard over and over and over again. Are there other frameworks that you utilize consistently? Yeah, so and one that we use within aviation, uh, probably a little bit more than the OODA loop, and it's been used within our crew resource management principles as well. And it's our decision-making model called T-DODAR. And the first thing we do is we say, how much time do we have? And then the first thing we do is we diagnose the problem. Uh, you ask your team for options. 
you get all of the input, then you as the leader make the decision, that's the decide, assign the tasks and then review it. And that's obviously the same as the OODA as in the review stage as well. So you've got that loop going round. Um, so it's a similar principle to the OODA loop. Um, but yeah, it just incor- incorporates that sense of how much time do we have as well? Because I think people can procrastinate a lot over decision making. Whereas actually, if you just think, you know what, we're going to make this decision in five minutes, let's get on with it. And I think businesses as well, actually knowing where you are within a decision making cycle is actually really helpful too. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think the UDA loop is good. Um, and then, you know, TDODAR as well is quite good. That um, element of time is really interesting. When has that been useful for you? Um, certainly when you're flying a mission. Um, so I've had missions in Iraq where I was leading and something happened. We were, we were actually engaged by a missile. Um, and instantly we went T we've got three minutes, you know, we very quickly worked out that, you know, time is of the essence. And when you're focused on something, what you tend to find is that the, our, um, our ability to analyze how much time we have disappears completely. So there's been so many experiments done on this cycle psychology wise, where basically if people are task orientated and focus on something and they ask how long have they been doing it for, they'll often say minutes and it can be sometimes 20 minutes. They will, they will guess it's around five. That's how far out your, your estimate of time mm. is. And it's because it, it's like, if you, if you're doing anything, you know, you're sitting, well, just very quickly focus on write this email and you look up and you think, Oh my gosh, how's that hour gone? You know, to that sort of task fixation, which gives us tunnel vision. So I think that, that, having an idea of how much time you've got is really important you can't leave us on on that cliffhanger of like, we had a we had a missile fired at us and we had three minutes <laughs> that's quite I'm fine. i might give that to my son as a as a, as a snapchat <laughs> or whatever it is instagram thing he's doing my social media for me um yeah no so uh we were i was leading my first ever combat mission and we were literally just sweeping up our last target we were just doing what's called a show of force over iraq at the time and we were engaged by a heat-seeking surface-to-air missile, and it's really unusual. They normally would always be fired in a radar in a radar mode. And um, my apologies. And basically, um, in this occasion, it was sent in heat-seeking mode. And basically, suddenly, you know, my navigator just shouted to me, you know, break right, and instantly, I just carried out the action that I was meant to do, which is basically going back to idle on my throttles turning the aircraft through 120 degrees and pulling hard towards the ground. And he put the flares out and we were really lucky that the missile took the flares and it exploded about two miles away from us, um, which felt like quite a near miss. And then at that point we were given a retasking um, because there were about, there was quite a few aircraft, I think up to about 80 aircraft airborne from four different countries around the Gulf. And we all had different, we were working closely with the Americans at this stage. This was in the run up to Gulf War Two. And um, everyone had different roles and responsibilities, but once an aggressive act had been made towards any of the coalition forces, then we were basically given a task to to prosecute an attack on a target. And we were very quickly running out of fuel. So using T-Dodar, we, we decided that we would head south to an airborne tanker where we managed to refuel successfully. Um, I did not manage to refuel. It was a tanker that I'd never tanked from before, so an American KC-135. And I wasn't clear to do it. I'd never tried in daylight, let alone at night in a, in a war zone when you've just been shot at. And um, after two attempts, I stepped across and let my boss and my senior executive officer refuel. Um, they went back into Iraq. They located the target and, and I landed back at base and I felt like a real failure. Um, but it's in those moments where 
all your learning takes place because my biggest learning that night actually was around the empowerment of the team and the leadership side of it because my boss had sat there very quietly as my number two and he hadn't interjected, he hadn't sort of tried to take over. But that's something that you would appreciate as well from the military background is the fact that that's what you do in the military. You know, if someone's leading, they are leading throughout. We don't see that in business. We, we see someone in a junior position being given a role and a task and a job to do. And then when the complexity gets, you know, you know more and more intense, the boss will often just step in and say, right, you're out of your debt. I'm going to take over. But if you do that, it's completely disempowering that person. And so it's about creating that environment whereby, you know, you're giving people the tools, the experience to let them grow, but without suffocating that growth. And that's what empowerment looks like. And that was really my biggest lesson when I look back that night. Yeah, there's there's two points that I want to bring out of that. One of them, I think I could probably guess the answer to, um, but I'd be really interested to hear what you think. How do you keep calm in a moment where you have have a missile fired at you or you're under threat like that? Uh, training. Uh, I'd say it's it's 100% training. I think it's phenomenal. So you're not just trying something for the first time and thinking, oh, let's just try something. You know, this is these are drills that you've done time and time again. And that's why we spend so much time in the simulator as well and, and also just practicing flying. So every single trip that you would fly in the UK before that, you know, they would someone would suddenly sh- shout something like break right or missile left two o'clock and you would instantly just do a manoeuvre when you're least expecting it. And by building up that that basically automatic pilot response so that you're people often say, you know, people are so dictated to by checklists and procedures and protocol when you're flying. But what they are doing by following those procedures, which have been drummed into you, you're creating an automatic program of response. So you're not just reacting to things. And because you've planned for it, because you've trained for it, um, when something happens, you're not just thinking, oh my goodness. And you're not going into firefighting mode. Were there any moments where you had to break protocol? Where you had to kind of, I don't want to say think creatively, but think outside of the standard SOP? Um, I think I've had, I probably have had emergencies that you've handled whereby I think, was it one night? I'm just trying to think actually where something happened and actually we were caught right in between two airfields air and it probably dictated it's landed your nearest suitable and um, we went for one that was slightly further away because we worked out we would have better facilities on the ground to sort out our problem so that's not dictated to that you're following the drills exactly and someone could have debated and said well you really should have gone to that one um but ultimately that's you using your experience and your knowledge to try to think about the bigger picture. So when we talk about situational awareness, we often use this acronym called NUTTER, notice it, understand and think ahead. And I like that one as well, because I think so often, you know, when something's going wrong wrong on a minor level, we don't often notice that initial stage. Mm -hmm. And if you're missing the initial stage of something, you certainly can't understand it and can't think ahead. So that would be a classic example whereby something had happened, an emergency but we were understanding the nature of the emergency and therefore applying our logic to that. The other thing you mentioned there that I'd love to explore is um, you said about how you dealt with failure. What failures have taught you the most? Um, I seem to, I mean, I failed many, many times actually in my life. And I think it's about being unafraid to fail. I think you, 
you will often fail when you're putting yourself outside of your comfort zone or when you're working at the edge of your capability. Um, and I think, interestingly, and I'll, I'll, I can frame it as a failure because it, it was, when I left the Air Force, I was really aware that when I'd had my children and then gone back into the Air Force post-maternity leave, I'd felt my confidence had taken a real dip. And I really thought and worried about was my brain up to it, was my confidence just wasn't there. And so I didn't want other women to go through that. And so when I left the Air Force, I'd had this vision to set up a company called Inspiring Women for Work. And it was basically about really, you know, exploring the fact that confidence is a muscle and it just needs to be exercised so that if people had, and particularly women, had taken a career break, be it through a sabbatical, be it through maternity or perhaps being a carer, whatever it was, when they stepped back into the workplace, that we were going to give them that launch pad to actually reboot their confidence so when they stepped back in, they could you know, go back in at full throttle. And the first session we ran, it was a two day session. We had 60 women. We had 10 life coaches and it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Phenomenal feedback. And then the second event I ran, I could barely sell a seat on this course. And I was thinking, why, why? And I'd had so much um, media coverage for the first one. You know, it's a wonderful story. Fast jet pilot left the Air Force, now wants to help other women and all of this sort of thing. So it had been picked up by a lot of national magazines and local newspapers as well. And then for the second one, of course, it was down to me. And it was at the same stage that my my motivational speaking business was starting to really take off. And I thought, I'm spending all my energy on inspiring women for work. And so I decided that I wouldn't run the second one and I stopped doing the business. And what was interesting, I felt like I felt like a failure, but it was also about recognizing when is the time to stop and when is it time to focus your energy on the right thing at the right time. And so that was a really, really important lesson to learn. And that actually came from a friend of mine who is a business owner himself. And he said, Mandy, if it's not working at this point, I think you need to focus your energies on what is working and how how you can make the most impact and make the most difference for people. Mm. And that's a really painful decision because there's a little bit of ego attached. There's the, I don't want to yeah. give up. I've, I've been very determined and resilient throughout my whole life and I get things done. And I think the the big difference that I've thought, uh, that I've had to reconceptualize since time in the military, learning how to interact and learning these ethos that I'm going to represent in every action I possibly can, and then entrepreneurship, is head down, grind, suffer is very, very useful in a lot of applications in the military and just get it done no matter the cost and suffer through it. And you get taught a hell of a lot of that in the Royal Marines of just go, 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 go. And then you transfer to entrepreneurship and it's if something doesn't work, kill it and move on to the next thing straight away as quickly as you humanly can. And that's a very different skill set. It is. And it's it, it's a different mindset. I think that's the mm-hmm. whole thing as well. And I think when you've come from the military where, it, as you say, your determination is what gets you to the end point. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that feeling of you thinking, God, I'm, I'm and also I put in so much passion into it. I was really genuinely passionate about this thing. And I'd, I got a business partner and we'd got, you know, we'd sorted out business bank accounts and we'd had all this media attention. And then it was like, actually, that's not really working. And I was like, <gasps> you know, it really felt this is not in my nature to give up, but it was, it was this business owner that said, Mandy mm-hmm. business is different. And I was yeah. like, okay, okay. That is fine to do that. Um, but that was yeah. a really hard lesson actually. And that phrase there giving up, is it really giving up or is it the step forwards? And that's the the difference that I think you learn to 
you learn to embody after a while and yes yeah, yeah. a, a really tough thing really yeah tough definitely thing. when did you decide to so you decided to leave when did um when did the kind of exploration of, Kilim- of Kilimanjaro and Everest Base Camp come into things? Um, so I was great friends. I'd done, done a, a really great event with a good friend of mine, um, Shardy, and it was called Attitude at Altitude. And so it was taking her story as an explorer uh, in expeditions. So she climbed Mont Blanc and the Matterhorn, and she was wanting to do Kilimanjaro, and she wanted to do it with 20 women. And she'd asked me, would I like to go? And I thought, you know what? It's exactly what I was missing because I'd gone from all the camaraderie and you know what it's like, that sense of team and spirit to working by myself, building a successful business, traveling a lot, meeting a lot of people, but not forging that length and that sort of depth of relationship. And so when she said she was doing Kilimanjaro, that's what really appealed to me. And, you know, having something to focus on. So training, you know, take going on really long walks. And I loved it, met all the girls. There was quite a few from around my area came with me um, on the expedition as well. And we did it in October four years ago. And it turned into probably one of my most challenging experiences, which considering... made it so challenging? Well, firstly, the weather was really rubbish and it was so every afternoon it was literally pouring down with rain which was really unusual in for October and so we're obviously camping as well at altitude and it's cold so when uh, I think it was on the evening of or, or day night night four and we're going to be summiting on the night of night five so you're going to leave the tents at midnight of night five anyway night four I was up all night with horrific stomach issues of the downwards variety fun. and oh fun I mean it felt in the morning as if literally I'd been hit by a bus I don't think I've ever felt that ill and so drained I don't think I'd slept a wink and then you're going to be walking all day going to sleep for a couple of hours then getting up at midnight and then walking up and it's going to take about six hours to get to the sun summit at sunrise and I literally they said Mandy I don't think you're going to be fit enough and I thought I went back to my sort of right control, the controllables feeling to it. What can I do about it? And I thought, right, I had to, there were a couple of doctors there with us as well. And they were like, take a lot of, lot of Imodium. So literally, I think I took about 30 Imodium. Nothing was stopping it. Um, and I had about eight litres of water. So at least I was hydrated, but my energy levels were zero. And when we opened the tents to start, you know, getting ready, we'd been told it was going to be a clear night and a freak storm had come in and it was complete whiteout really thick snow on the ground and the weather was horrific and one of the Sherpas said it was his worst weather conditions he'd seen in his 300 summit attempts so he said in all those summits there's been four times that he's experienced that weather but he said that was the worst and it took us nine hours to get to the summit we got there at about quarter to nine and I was drained and I literally burst into tears and we couldn't see anything. It was complete whiteout. It was like, you know, a ski resort at whiteout. So there we are at the summit, rooftop of Africa, no view. And then it was slippy. So we literally, I was on my bottom almost the whole way down, sort of going, you know, sliding down. We weren't, you didn't have crampons or any sort of, you know, suitable footwear really for walking on snow. And yeah, and by the time we got back, it, it we got back so late, we didn't have time to then go to bed. Normally, you would get back and have breakfast and go to bed for about four hours. We literally got back. I threw up absolutely everywhere. There was nothing left to give. And also, you know, you're in a snow blizzard whilst you're having a lot of motions 
which was not pleasant. So mm-hmm. it was probably the singular most, well, let's just say resilience I'd had to show on my determination to achieve a goal because there was no way I was not going to do it. No way in the world. And and yet I was literally through the eye of a needle, excuse my French, <laughs> the whole way up. That sounds very tough. Yeah, sounds it was, it was not pleasant. Tough. And of course I ended up therefore by myself for most of that walk because the team were all moving up on mass. But every time I had to take myself off the beaten track to go to the loo, I had to take all my kit off each time and then they'd gone. And I would try and walk really quickly, which you can't really when you're summiting at, you know, five and a half thousand metres. I'd catch them up and they'd already had their break and then they were leaving. And so it was really demoralising sort of mentally. And at one point, I just said to this one guy, Musa, who was with me, I said, I think I'm broken. He went, you are strong, you are powerful. And I said, yes, but I have just pooed on my glove. (laughs) (laughs) At which point he just started laughing and he went, it's fine. I was like, it's not fine. That's the lowest point I've ever been. So, uh, yeah, that was was the, the moment. (laughs) <laughs> fantastic fantastic um you, you're still getting into the mountains fairly frequently then yeah absolutely i mean i didn't I put did you off that space much. camp no definitely not no um i did every space camp in april this year with my mm. husband actually and also with six gentlemen from wigan and as they said it's been a cultural experience but not of the nepalese variety and they were brilliant actually um i took some very different lessons from everest one was, I think, don't judge a book by its cover because it was a very, very different team dynamic. Um, Kilimanjaro, I'd known the majority of the girls before we went out there. And on this one, I only knew my husband. And then we met these guys on on the first night and they were as broad Wigan accents. And, you know, there were real characters, some very strong characters in there. And I think it was interesting thing. They probably thought, oh, who are these middle-class wankers is what they said, actually. I'm, you know, not to be rude, but which was ironic because I'm from Manchester and grew up about 20 miles from them. So I was like, yeah, that doesn't really fit. But they were really different characters. And what was really nice was breaking each of them down and not taking them as a mass of six guys. They Mm. were very, very different within their group. And actually, you know, when you end up just talking to them all individually and having those conversations, you know, they they were fantastic guys. And that was a real... A, a real wake-up call. Don't judge a book by its cover, Mandy. You know, on that first meeting, mm. it's easy just to think this is what they're going to be like, and they weren't like that at all. Yeah. How did these all prepare you for? I suppose one of the biggest shifts in identity that you can encounter, which is becoming a mother, because like you have to. That was obviously, I'm guessing, pre Kilimanjaro, pre um, yeah. pre Everest base camp. But was it post military or at the end of? Uh, coming towards the end of my military career I had a couple of years left actually so I left my frontline tour and then had my children on a ground tour and then I went back and I did a second line tour in direct support of tornado operations when I had my children Um, so they were very close together in age just 17 months between two boys Mm. and that was probably one of the most challenging experiences and still continues to be. Um, now they are 19 as of yesterday and 20 and they're six foot six or six foot five and six foot four and they're massive. And yeah, they're still, they, they're, they're fun, but it's still challenging being a mum. It's just different. How do you deal with the identity shift or like, uh, I suppose it's like an identity bolt on or like there's something that shifts with your responsibilities and yeah, the way yeah. you must perceive yourself at that time. 
I think it's about how we perceive risk, actually, was the, probably the biggest thing that I noticed that changed for myself was because before I used to always think, if I die, it's only my, my, my husband would obviously be quite upset, but it's only my boyfriend, my sister, my family, my friends. No one is dependent upon you. And the second you have children, you suddenly think if something happens to me, that's going to change their lives forever. And therefore, your perception of risk and how you regard it also changed for myself. I probably, I'd always been, I'd, I'd, I love risk. I mean, that's why I love skiing. It's why I love to ski fast. I, I like putting myself outside of my comfort zone. And suddenly, actually, it made me think I need to just be a little bit more careful. So, you know, it was it was just interesting. Was that a conscious decision or was that something that kind of went, okay, this is just the only option to me? Um, It wasn't a conscious decision, no. But I just noticed that, I don't know, even in my flying, you know, I start to think, and even, for example, mountain biking, you know, I love mountain biking. I might be the slowest uphill, but my goodness, I'll probably be the fastest downhill because I love the speed. I love that. Oh, I'm right on the edge of comfort. And I've now noticed as well, you just think, oh, if I come off now, this is going to really ruin the rest of you know, the year or whatever it is. I've started to just, maybe it's age, to be honest, Tom. You're still young, you know, you've still got it all naive. in front of you. Now you throw yourself down mountains, don't care. That's the way forward. <laughs> yeah. No, there's definitely, a, a as you encounter more responsibility, there's definitely yeah. a shift in I think that's- longevity of thinking and thinking, yeah, long-term rather than the short-term kind of immediate gratification of throw yourself yeah. off something cool and no, the final thing i want to touch on is writing and how you came to yeah. to write your book um and what the process of writing was like for you it's a really really good question because writing and english were never my strong point so i was math stem all that side of things and i'd had it in my head that i wasn't a writer so when people you say you're going to write a book because that was the one question I always got asked. I'd always say, no, 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 I can't write. And then I started to say, not yet. And this was actually, this is such a lovely little bit of learning because I realised as soon as you start to say not yet, you're reframing the, what is possible and you're opening that door and suddenly you're thinking, oh, maybe I should. And then as soon as you think, maybe I should, then it's, how can I? Well, actually, I'm I'm not a writer. And so what I did was I worked really closely with a great friend of mine who is a, it was a journalist and an excellent writer and you know one of my great friends from university and he absolutely loved the military as well and knew of my career loved flying and so the two of us worked really closely hand in hand and we we wrote an office and not a gentleman together and when I sent it out then to all the publishing houses and it was rejected by all of them which was really annoying um, but the best rejection email said that plain books are for a male readership with no interest, who have no interest in a woman's story, which I just thought, ah, which frustrated me beyond belief. But um, so I, in the end, I chose to self-publish it on Amazon. And I found a local publicist or printer um, here in Winchester, where I live. And I, I literally went in and said, you know, how, how, how do you go about printing a book? And he said, well, you normally would do a print run of 100. I said, oh, I was thinking a bit more, maybe 500. He went, oh, no, 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 no. No, no one has ever sold 500 books that I've printed. Anyway, so I went for 500. Actually, I went for 100, actually. 
And then the next order was for a thousand. And then the next one was for 5,000. So currently he's printed, I think something like 10,000 books for me. And he just can't believe his luck. And when I said, oh, I might be going on a print a publishing deal. And he said, no, please don't. <laughs> Literally, you're keeping me in business, Maddie. Um, but yeah, so it's really nice actually. So I, I then can sell my book directly to all my clients that I do speeches for but also it's available on Amazon for print on demand so it's sort of the best of both worlds because I've I've got complete control over the publishing rights of the book and everything about it. What did you learn through writing because there's an element of writing where you're discovering you're not necessarily discovering something but you conceptualize things and you wrap things up neatly in stories is there anything that was surprising to you? It's very cathartic because the one one fantastic thing being a pilot is you have a logbook and every single flight you've ever flown in the military has been logged. And so there are details on those ones as well. So, for example, on flights in Iraq, it will have, I don't know, um, near miss, you know, whatever it was, or it was a um, target running near Baghdad. And therefore, because you've got that literal day-to-day diary, it it stimulates all of those thoughts. And so that was really encouraging you know, just encouraging for the process and and really interesting to go back in detail over missions and, you know, looking at things like um, threat and error management, which is something we talk about a lot within aviation and think, oh, this was like the perfect storm. You know, we would call it the Swiss cheese model when we look at error management and threats. And actually it was all like the holes in my cheese had aligned and I could almost see this disaster of this trip and thinking, gosh, it's not until you analyse it and you want to take the learnings from a flight that as you're writing it down, that you start to actually realise, my goodness, that's a how training works and that's why we didn't die on that occasion. Um, but I also learned that the publishing world is incredibly slow and very, very frustrating. And it just seems that, you know, when you can do things like Amazon print on demand, when you're then going and getting a publishing deal and it's going to take two years and they say, yeah, we'll take the book and we'll look at getting it out in two years' time. You think, Really? That frustrated me. And actually, I much prefer to go a bit quicker than that. Especially when you're someone who aligns themselves with adventure and freedom and like even even the concept of flying is yeah. without limitation through like your standard dynamics. Like it's, yeah, it's someone that really wants to go quickly and yeah, explore. Absolutely. So that's, that's fantastic. Where can people book you for speaking, follow you on social media, um, get the book? Yeah, so... Pretty much on all social medias, I'm either Mandy Hickson or Mandy Hickson Speaker. So on Facebook, it's Mandy Hickson Speaker, Instagram, Mandy Hickson Speaker, Twitter, I think Mandy Hickson, um, and LinkedIn as well. Um, but um, I have my own website, which is, I'm going to shock you now, Tom. What could it be? It, it's going to be www.mandyhickson.com. Good branding. Um, so yeah, and and the book, you know, if you wanted to direct one, you can buy it through the website or just go on Amazon as well, and they they can do print on demand, and you get it next day. So the options are numerous. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it's it. A pleasure. Thanks so much, Tom. <laughs>